0: welcome to not safe for publication a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research i'm georgia
1: I'm Anna and today we have Susanna Sanchez-Gonzalez. Yay,
0: you're so great. Susanna, welcome. It's uh, great to have you on the show. Could you start by telling us a little bit about yourself, where you're up to in your PhD and how you came to be here at Manchester?
2: Well, I am on my first year of PhD. I'm doing it part-time as well. So this is the year one out of a total of six, which seems like a long, long, long time. I also work for the university library. I work part-time there Fridays and Saturdays. Today, I'm part of the, uh, I'm one of the supervisors of the shelving team. So, if you've got any problems not finding books on the shelves, that might be because of my team. <laughs> but we're really good. We're excellent at what we do. So, so I'm sure there's no problem there. How do I come to be here? I'm actually from Spain. I'm from Madrid. As you can gathered by my accent I guess but I have been in the country for the past 21 years so I'm really Mancunian by this stage (laughs) Uh, and I just got my settled status so I'm actually proper British as well I guess.
0: Um, Congratulations. Yeah I'm very excited about that
2: whatever. (laughs) But I'm officially allowed to be in the country even though I have been here for the past 21 years. I'm a mature student as it were I suppose I hate the term because I did my masters 17 years ago. It is a long time, things have changed a lot. I did my master's here at the University of Manchester in art galleries and museums to study. I did my degree in Spain, my bachelor's degree in the history of art and then I moved to the UK, did my masters, went to Italy to work there for a while and then came back and then after a long time decided that it was the right time to start a PhD in museology. So do you want me to go into explaining the whole thing, how I can do
0: Yeah, I mean, it would be great to hear about your project. We've at least had one museology. Person on before, yeah. So. yeah.
2: Well, to be honest, it's something of a combination of two disciplines because, as I said, my academic background is in art galleries and museums of studies, and my degrees in art history. However, most of my working career has taken place in libraries, and I've worked in every single kind of library that you can think of, from public libraries to school libraries to academic libraries, and also to historic libraries.
0: Yeah, I noticed on your LinkedIn that you worked at Chatham's, yeah, which I'll, is a very sort of yeah, important
2: historic. I have library. To correct you there if oh. you don't mind me because it's, it's only as an insider that I know this. If you work in the library, you refer to the library as Cheathams. Right. If you work in the School of Music, you refer to the School of Music as chathams
0: I okay. see.
2: <laughs> right? I learned something. <laughs> and Do not get the mix because they get very particular about these things over there. <laughs> but yeah, it, it is an amazing place and I was really, really lucky to be given the opportunity to work with one of the collections there. And that only happened when I decided to go into rare book librarianship. And this is when it get sort of confusing and interesting, I guess, because when I was doing my masters, I don't know if I was off that, but I don't remember being ever told that you can work with books in a museum sort of like capacity. So, you know, in in my mind, it was always working in a museum, in an art gallery, working with artworks, not with books. And at the same time, I've always been a bit of a library, you know, bookworm, and I just love going to the British Library, to Rylands, to the National Library in Spain, which is great, and many other libraries around different places. And one day, it just hit me, was like, hold on one minute, someone must have curated this exhibition. So therefore, there must be some curatorial sort of side to exhibiting books that I'm just not aware of. And sort of by looking more into this, I discovered the profession of rare book librarian and rare book in special collections departments in big libraries and big institutions. So I decided to do a course on how to deal with rare books. That was when I got the job at Cheatham's Library. And as part of my job over there also was to curate a very small exhibition because they are very limited in terms of a space. If you've never been to Cheatham's, go and see. it. It's open to the public. It's because it's behind these sort of walls that are protecting the students there. Very talented music students over there. That it looks like not many people know that is there, but or oh, it looks like you cannot access the place, but you can. So do have a look on the website where you go all the details. And it's a magical place, and it's the oldest building in the city. It goes back to the 13th century, and it's uh, it's just a joy. Anyway,
0: I have been there, Anna. Have you been there? Yes, yes. and they and do they do desk.
2: tours and they do uh, sort of after hours tours, uh, which are perfect. You know, mm. if you're looking for a Valentine day. <laughs> <laughs> thing to do, is really the place. Anyway, and the people over there are just lovely. So they gave me this opportunity, and I have to create the exhibition and that's how I got thinking about, okay, well put in book. In a display case, what was was that about? That got me thinking, right? And it got me thinking at the beginning from the point of view of the profession of librarianship and the profession of curatorship. It is true, I believe, that when you are doing a master's in art galleries and museum studies to learn to be a curator, there is reason a subject that's sort of about dealing with rare books in terms of preservation mainly, but in also in terms of what, what do we make the most of these books on display. So there's something lacking there. And by the same token, if you look at librarianship, there is reason a subject that deals with how to go about curating exhibitions. It's just not there. They tell you about inf- providing information, they tell you about many other things, but not about putting out exhibitions. So the, the thing is that in many occasions you find yourself in a position of having to create an exhibition with no experience whatsoever. You may know how to treat those books from a preservation point of view, so how to make sure that they don't get damaged in this exhibition process, but th- that's it, nothing else. How do you write a label? And believe me, there's a whole science about how to write labels. How do you display them in, in a particular way so you make the most of them? How do you create a whole marketing campaign around it? How do you create an educational sort of a program around it? Lots of things that people that work in museums and studies learn how to do, but people that learn to be librarians really don't get to see. Unless you go into rare book librarianship and you might have a little bit of information in passing so that was one of the my main sort of reasons I kind of discovered like a gap that I could address by studying books and exhibitions so that was one side of the research but the problem really was is okay how to approach this was the best way to approach this because there's so many ways that you can come to it so to begin with uh, I suppose this is a reflection on what happens when you display a book it, it, it seems like there's something that doesn't sit well that there's some contradiction that it seems like the only way to really extract the magic in inside that book is by reading them, but reading is not an option in the content of an exhibition. Reading takes time, you, at least two or three hours to read a book, and also, you know, you need to access the whole book. Again, that doesn't happen when you put the book inside a display case. And by the same token, you look at exhibitions happening, I don't know, at the British Library, at the Botleyan, islands, and people visit those exhibitions by the thousands. So what was going on there? You know, you're going to go and see an exhibition about books that you know you're not going to be able to read, that you're not going to be able to access. So what's bringing you to those exhibitions? So it's kind of exploring the rationale behind that. What makes people go to those kind of exhibitions? Because surely there's something that is working there. They're very, very successful exhibitions. Mm -hmm. So I was interested in knowing how do they play about this idea of books and reading, our relationship with books, our experience reading, how you bring that together in the context of an exhibition. When you go to the literature, there's nothing there. It's just the angle that I want to give to the research. It just seems to be not considered because my research is about bringing the reading experience, however you want to define that, to the exhibition of books. Now, what is a reading experience? Your definition of the the experience that you get from reading is very different from the one that you make or the one that I get. It's it's a very subjective thing. So if you look at the literature, it has been studied, but it has been studied in relation to the content of the book. Mm -hmm. So you got all the English students learning about this reader response uh, theory, how the the grammatical structure of the content might influence the way you respond to it. Everything is content-based.
0: Rather than sort of coming to the book as like an object, something you hold in your hands. Precisely, precisely. So it's
2: just when you are putting an exhibition together, exhibitions are primarily visual. So you have to play with what you got, and what you got is a book as an object with some formal aspects. So sometimes the content of the book is not really that important because one of the reasons why you might be exhibiting that book is because it's a beautiful object in itself, or it is showing some kind of craftsmanship that makes it interesting. Visually, evidently visually. It's easy to see why you put that book on display. But then again, you know, you might come to Cheetahs, for example, and I might show you Newton's Principia, Mm -hmm. right? And if I show you the book, it might not look much to you. It just, it looks like a leather-bound kind of book. That's it. If I tell you that it was written by Newton, you may go, oh, I heard of that name. Mm -hmm. If I tell you that it's first edition, then you go, oh, wow. So if the more information that I give you about that book that is not sort of related to the form of the book, then you might start to get it, Mm -hmm. right? And put it plainly. I don't want to go into academic terms for yeah. it, you know, get so it.
0: what it was making me think of is the concept of the aura, yes. right, of sort of the book as an object that maybe links you to a history through having been handled or written yes. by someone, through yeah. being yeah, just a rare or expensive
2: object even, like. Yeah, precisely. Let's just explain this from the very beginning, because the fundamental idea is how do you draw meaning mm-hmm. from books? right? How, how does the book talk to you? How do you experience the book? Most of the time you tend to think that that is because you read the content of the book. You read the story, the story has made you feel in a particular way and that's why you think well this book is, is a meaningful object to me because of the story inside that book. Now, think about this, when you, you've read a book and you need to leave a review on Amazon or something, and then you say, well, yeah, it was a great book, but however, the font was so small, I couldn't really, you know, it, it was bothering me, or it was too heavy, I could not take me, take it with me to bed, or, you know, I was on my way to on my holidays and it was such a heavy book. Subconsciously, you do consider some formal aspects of the book when you read it, you just don't think about them. The, I'm simplifying a lot here, okay? But the reason why you don't tend to notice is because the books that we tend to read today, and again, and this is a very, very broadly speaking, they are the result of a whole history of, in book design. And mm. the aim has always been to provide you with a fully immersive experience of mm. the content of mm. the book, right?
0: Almost making the book itself
2: transparent. Precisely. It's actually, that's, that's what it's called. It's called the, 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 the crystal goblet is what as English theory refers to it. The book is there to disappear. Everything related to the design of the book is so you can get so sort of engaged with the content of the book, with the, with this idea that was created by the author of the book, and sort of it wants to be deposited into your own mind as well, with no interference whatsoever. So the font has to be the best one for you to not get bothered by it. the weight of the book, the color of the paper, um, and many other things that you write. So those are all related to, to the formal aspect of the book. You don't tend to notice them. You only notice them when they fail to work you know, when they're not carrying on the function in the way they're supposed to, to do that. But that is the, the result of a whole evolution. That is now because it's responding to the needs of our society and sort of some of the uh, cultural and social ideas that are part of the society that we have grown as readers. If you compare that to, uh, I don't know, the way a um, medieval book May look like is a very different object however the way that that book the format of the book res- also responds to the needs of the society of the readers of the time so i always use this example because i think this is the most evident one if you look if picture a medieval book picture a medieval page normally you get the text in say two columns concentrated in the center of the page and you got really wide margins now do you know why that is
1: uh, marginalia
2: marginalia that's what you would write mm-hmm. but why would you write there
1: Well, in order to interpret and explain?
2: Yes. And you know why that is?
1: Because you had to annotate the Bible and other kind of sacred texts?
2: Well, it's it's mainly because reading in the past, it was a very different Mm -hmm. experience to what it is now. Reading was a social activity. Reading was about talking, sharing commenting, sharing your opinions. You mm-hmm. will put your comments on the margins. That book will book will be consulted by someone else in another monastery, for example, and they will write their comments. They could see what you thought about the book. And they will write it, so mm-hmm. it, it will be communicated through that marginalia in a way, because that's what reading was about. Reading was wasn't uh, about you know lying in your sofa with your novel and just getting immersed in that fiction story. It was a completely different thing. Reading silently is only from the seventh century onwards. Before the seventh century, to read in silence was not common. And that's uh, an idea that if you're not into the history of the book and the history of reading, is not common knowledge. You will assume that people read silently from the very beginning. That's another reason why there are many books where there is no separation between the words. There are no paragraphs because the text will be there to be read out loud, not silently. So when you're reading out loud, that doesn't really help. So the mm. format of the book responds to the needs of the readers.
1: I do find it really, really interesting how nowadays the vast majority of people, even though the books are cheaper, and and kind of, you know, more disposable than they've ever been. A lot of people who like books will now not want to write anything in that very cheap edition and will not want to fold the pages like that. But if you look at, you know, some 19th century editions, which would have been significantly more expensive, people will scribble on the margins their thoughts, especially Dante, I think, was annotated quite a lot.
2: Yeah, well, there's loads, there's lots yeah. of examples. Uh, there's a whole discipline just studying marginalia. It really is. so interesting but it's not just the way you've described it we have all these ideas about how people treated books in the past and how people read books in the past that we tend to assume that's how they were and and it really is fascinating if you go to the history of the book find this from the history of reading completely different scenario where you you will be really shocked to to learn how very different things were in the past and what you're referring to I talk about about it as well in my research because as I was saying I'm trying to explore how you draw meaning from the book and trying to to make the case that the way we draw meaning from books is not just related to the content, but it's also related to the format. However, we also draw meaning from books in ways that nothing to do with the content or the format, it's to do with our own ideas about books and reading that we may have acquired either because of our own experience of book and reading and the role they have played in our lives, so say, for example, if you were part of a family where reading was a normal thing, you would go to the library every Saturday, your parents would read to you. That experience of reading and books is very different from someone perhaps has there no books in their houses, parents don't read, they just... I don't know, they may have the dyslexia and that's always make reading very difficult for them. So their relationship towards books and reading is very different from the one that you may have. So your own experiences, that brings you in a completely different way to that book that you got in front of you what I might see very different from what other people might see but also you have all those ideas about books and reading that they've been built around the society's idea about books and reading that have develop after years, centuries of interaction with the books, so there are certain ideas that we associate with books and reading, which have suffered, again, an evolution. We associate books with wealth, with power, with knowledge, with erudition, and those ideas are still there. So I'm trying to try to bring all those experiences as well to the exhibition of books, because mm. if you look to museum theory, the idea of a visitors having an experience in the exhibition context is very important to ensure that that exhibition is somehow successful, it becomes a, par- a, a parameter to evaluate those exhibitions. That doesn't seem to have happened so much within theory, in sort of in library and information science studies to do with book exhibitions. They've looked at it from a completely different angle. So what museum theory tells us is that when you're able to establish some kind of personal connection with the object that you call in front of you, then you can have one of those, aha! moments Mm -hmm. that are like oh I'm getting now and that I call it in my research uh, the Numinous experience which is a very funny word Numinous the Numinosity of the book the Numinosity of the book basically is just those aspects of the book that make you react emotionally Mm -hmm. make you just awaken something in you
0: I was just thinking as you were speaking just what emotional objects books can be for something where as you say we mainly think of them as a sort of conveyor of content but actually there was a tweet doing the rounds a few weeks ago about an academic who saws her books if she's got a thick book she cuts it in half down the spine so that that she can take (laughs) half of it with her and so many people were reacting really really strongly to that because it seems kind of sacrilegious to kind of carve up a book Even when it's yours, even when it's a mass yeah. market paperback, yeah. or yeah. you know. Well,
2: you were talking about how people don't like their books to be yeah. sort of. They want to keep them in pristine condition. Well. Oh, the ways English students treat their books. Is <laughs> well, you know, the first thing that I do with a book. Crack the spine. I break the spine. Yeah. I just love doing that and I just love the feeling. And I, I don't mind buying books in, in charity shops because I love having a book in my hand that has been handled. If I think about it a lot, then I get to be like oh my god, this is of germs. <laughs> <trimmed." laughs> yeah. I mean, it's probably and, fine. Don't lick them, but you're otherwise. Yes, fine. And, but if I also <laughs> work, you know, shelving is part of my everyday work. <laughs> okay, so you, I can't really think about that in <laughs> too much depth. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love doing that to my books and I love writing there and I love uh, you know I have there's a whole study about this as well so my relationship is what's called a a very carnal relationship with my books whether others are more well respectful I guess it's a different complete attitude what I was trying to say is that there's an interesting reflection as well here there's a lot of discussion about the death of the book you know books are do soon that books are going to disappear. And I still talk, when I talk to people about book exhibitions, they you know, somehow the conversation always ends up about the books are going to disappear in the way, aren't they? And it's just no, no, no. The book is here and is here to stay for a long time because again, I talk about this in my research, the book is as a conveyor of meaning, as we were saying, but it's also a device. Mm. It's a medium, right? It's, it's an artifact that allows you to read the concept. So uh, as medium, yes, the digital technologies are coming and coming here quite strongly, and they might be more effective as a medium to access that content. But the book has been able to evolve throughout his history. It's a a shape-shifter, as it were, you Mm. know. He's so, he's he's always been able to adapt to, you know, changes in the way it was produced, changes in the way it has been read, so many different changes, and he's always been able to just, you know, go with the flow and change. And books are changing from that point of view, because you got all these e-books and digital reading devices. So it is changing, we're not denying that. But there are so many ideas attached to the book as an object, is still a very powerful, full of emotions, kind of artifact. So it, it's not going to disappear. What you feel that is disappearing is the way that we used to read. So it's reading that is changing. We don't have time anymore to sit down and get lost in a book. Our the the, the way that our society is going these days is so fast paced. You're so used to scrolling and clicking, get distracted so easily that to have the time to just sit down with a book and read and not get distracted by anything. That's what people seem to be mourning. Right? It's yeah. just I'm. I'm losing the time I don't have time anymore which what was the last time that you got lost in a book it's been a while <laughs> on a
1: flight <laughs> yeah you, yes, you have
2: to wait to particular times to do that and unless you make time for that to happen it tends not to happen so that's the feeling that's the feeling we, we can we can feel something is disappearing but it's certainly not the book if you, if you look around there's so many book festivals There's so many I mean we even got book cities now like hey away that people mm-hmm. visit Millions of people go to hay Way just to see mm-hmm. the book, and again, we have our own special relationship with books. Books are—you still see people, you know, taking official pictures with shelves of books behind them because they still convey these meanings of seriousness and power, I don't know, all those ideas I was referring to. So all those ideas around the book I want to bring to the study of books and exhibitions because if you look at the literature they're simply not there. They've been looked at from a completely different point and according to the interests and the needs mainly of rare book and special collections in academic libraries. So when they talk about exhibitions they talk about them as being a very effective engagement tool to establish connections with the staff, with the students. Uh, so they look at them from the point of view within the context of the academic community. So when you talk about how you go about evaluating the the success of that exhibition is in terms of educational outcomes. What did the students got out of this exhibition? What did the staff got out of this exhibition? What did the library got? Did we manage to promote our collections? and that to me are all very valid points but if we compare to the way sort of museum studies and the theory of museum uh, of exhibitions it's just very different and i think one of the reasons is because they haven't really studied this particular connection this object view relationship you know that very that unit that Mm -hmm. is just based on what happens when someone encounters a book in an exhibition context. Let's just not go to the rest of the the museum experience, the, the library experience, not what happened before and after, but what happens in that particular moment. So that's why I'm looking at the formal aspects of the book that are able to help us to read the book in a different way, even though you don't have access to the content. Those emotions that are active when we encounter a book in an exhibition because they might have a role to play in deciding to go and see the exhibition in the way that you evaluate the exhibition and they might have an impact on deciding future visits to exhibitions. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wow, it's been absolutely fascinating to learn just a little bit about your research and where it's going to be going for the next five years. Yeah, well I don't know (laughs) where
2: (laughs) it's going. This is
0: just the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. So We like to ask our guests to kind of share a little something about their experience. And you mentioned you kind of wanted to talk a little bit about your experience coming back to PhD as a
2: mature yeah. student, mature student, yeah. uh, Hate the word. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an immature student. Yes, you're, you are, you're, you're very immature. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's the thing because obviously I I, I uh, sort of share a WhatsApp group with the other of PhD students in, in my department, and you you can tell. I mean that is it's, it's a completely different experience. I actually encourage everybody to take a break when they finish <laughs> their degrees and when they're yeah. taking their masters because if you had asked me even even a year or well, two years ago, would you go back to, would you ever do a PhD? I will say never, never in a million years. Like uh, that is just, no, why would I, you know, don't want to. Because when I finished my master's, I was so keen to work like I had enough of theorizing about things that is just blah 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 give me an exhibition I want to create an exhibition you know I just give me I don't know something more tangible this is just way too abstract I really wanted to go out there and work so now after having worked for nearly well nearly 20 years 17 20 years like I feel like I'm ready to stop and look back and reflect on those experiences and I think I come from a much more informed position to be able to theorize about the work However, when you are straight from, from a degree, from a master's degree, yes, you do know a lot of theory and things that look really well on paper. Actually, I, they don't really work in practice. So I've learned that the, the hard way, I suppose. So yeah, I'm, I'm back to this. And I also have a family. i got two boys. And I'm from Spain. My husband is a Spanish too, so I have no family around me. Things get in the way when you are a mature student or when you have a family, when you have all the commitment, commitments. Well, I was thinking about, I was trying to remember something that my son, I got two boys. Mm-hmm. One is nine, the other one is 13 and it's really funny how whenever they see me stressing out about (laughs) my work, my little one came out with a very good piece of advice that made me laugh at the time. But by the life of me, I cannot remember (laughs) what he said. So I know that you're asking for for a funny sort of anecdote or something to do with your degree that is funny. And I I, I just started, I don't have anything funny to share with you. I don't think my, my life is very simple in that sense. But at the same time, it is true that what I find interesting is how many times I have to change my hats throughout the day. So I was just saying I might have attended a conference where there has been really intellectual discussions or oh, um, I have just written something to do with my literature review where I have to develop a very abstract thought and suddenly I'm getting interrupted by my 9-year-old fighting with his 13-year-old brother because, you know, whose turn it is to go on the place. or, you know, I have to stop because I have to take the walk- dog for a walk or I have to go shopping, I have to do the cooking so it's constantly y- y- you having this very intellectual life that is it gets interrupted or something really mundane, and I guess that's a completely different experience to the experience that you may have, you know, as a student that you, you can call yourself a full-time student, you know, with with all your student ways and all the different kind of responsibilities that you have compared to the ones that mm-hmm. I have. I'm not saying that mine are worse. I'm just saying it's just different, different kind of experience. So, yeah, it's it's a very strange feeling to go back to academia. And and also the blo- bloom internet. I remember doing my research I uh, still going to the library and checking all these books. And now the amount of resources that you got at your fingertips is is just multiplied by the thousand and that can be very overwhelming because where do I st- where do you start? It was good not to have so much access to all
1: those resources back then. Like I usually start by making an alphabetical l- reading list and then I yes. just start from A.
2: Yes,
1: because <laughs> otherwise I just I just can't but where, deal where do with it. There's you start? too much.
2: I mean, there's no reason for, for you know, you can't justify yourself say, oh, I'm, I'm afraid the only article was, you know, in a library miles away from, from me because, hello, there's that that can be excused. And these days you can access it online and, and there are different ways to go about it. So, you know, there's no, you can't just define not having gone to the source Mm. and to have quoted someone and not having gone to the original source because you should have been able to, you know what I mean? So it's it's a completely different research experience, I guess.
0: I mean just thinking about the sort of the reading experience as well, you know, I have to we all have to read a lot of journal articles yeah. and I can't read them on a screen. I have to print them out every single time yeah. so that I can and scribble like on them because yeah. I just feel like I can't concentrate on something that's on yeah. a screen. My brain starts telling me mm. to look at something else. Yes. So I've just got a folder that's
1: like six inches yeah. thick that was printed out journal I'm completely the other way around because if I read something, if I read a physical book in my brain that's just pleasure reading. Yeah. <laughs> like that's pleasure reading and just yeah. relaxing, yeah. I can't and then I can't afterwards remove remember remember anything that i read in any detail Mm. but like when I work I have to stare at the screen I have like half the screen my notes half the screen whatever I'm reading and that's it and I'm concentrating I do tend to kind of block anything else that can be on the
2: screen we can you see but yeah. how, how already you've described a lot of things that have impacted on the way you are making sense of what you're reading, drawing meaning from that content that you go in front of your screen. That has nothing to do with the content, it's to do with the space, yeah. your position, your sort of attitude towards the text that you have <sighs> I to think read. Her, There's so many formal I things. think
0: Anna's. Age makes her more of a digital native of course, <laughs> than well. me and you. So reading on a screen but feels. I,
2: I wouldn't read a fiction book for pleasure on the screen, but I'm no. very happy to read an article yeah. for my research. You know, uh, I do
1: find it really useful even when I have the opportunity to look at on the screen to look go to the primary material and when it is physical, mm. and then it's also very exciting. So, I chari- charity fair found this really exciting end of 19th century book, 10 pounds as well, about China that has a map in it that you could like mm. unfold from the book. Yeah, and I brought it into the classroom. And when I was teaching a module that had to do with the that and that i think changed the experience yes. for the students because yeah. they kind of engaged yeah. with this subject yeah. from this time, yeah. um, and maps are exciting. Yeah,
2: and you see the real thing, that's, that's yeah. another aspect of the research yeah. that I haven't really talked that much about, but it's, it's one of the points, and again one of the points that I'm trying to make, or I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to be exploring I'm trying to make the point, but for example, I, I went to an exhibition at the British Library just before Christmas on Buddhism, okay? So, I went into the exhibition, and the first thing that you find is this concertina type of book, there's the you know, yeah. ones that you, they fold out. The book was about easily two, two and a half meters long. Wow. Well, it was a massive thing, right? Mm-hmm. Inside a display case with these wonderful illustrations. And there were many other books like that throughout the exhibition. They were very odd-looking books. Some of them were made out of bamboo sticks, mm-hmm. sort of attached together, yeah. like that, yeah. Very different script. It was just uh, very odd-looking objects, right? And when I look at the labels, sort of the interpretation, They all to do with the story that the book was telling, you know, trying to describe the illustration because they were trying to, I guess, make sure that the people who visited the exhibition knew more about Buddhism. And I got thinking, well, hold on, surely this is the British Library. This is a library, and this is an exhibition based on books. Why are you not telling me why this book looks the way it does? Why are you not telling me how will this, how will you read this book? When, for what purpose, out loud, in silence? Like yes, do tell me about the content. Do tell me about that illustration. I want to know about that. But surely this is a library you should be explaining a little bit more about that, because that helped people realise the role, the value of, of, of the work that libraries do these days, in, in particular spe- rare books and special collections, because there's a whole debate about whether they should be museums of the book or not, that's, you know, I, I don't want to bore you more with, with this, but this is all part, part of the research, the, you know, is perhaps what will give libraries the edge to compete with the digital shift and the pressures that digital technologies are bringing, it's, as you were saying. It's seeing the real thing, which is what museums are about, and there's no reason why libraries cannot be about it.
0: Susanna, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been an absolutely fascinating episode to record. I feel (laughs) like it's (laughs) I just could keep talking <laughs> to you for another hour, but we're uh, we're coming up to our time. Sure. So, thank you so much for Thanks joining for us today. Me, yeah. Thank fun. you. As always, don't tell your supervisor what you heard here today. No, please don't. No. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> what happens when so the podcast stays in the podcast.
0: Not safe for publication is a podcast by and for the research students of the Faculty of Humanities at the University of Manchester. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter at NSFPPodcast or you can email us at NSFPPodcast at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by Twin Musicom.